I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of poetry to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem or a couple of poems. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive writing edu slash pensound. Today, I am joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Dixon Lee, who studies dance, moving image aesthetics, spatial composition practices, and theories of embodiment with special attention to anti-colonial aesthetics and the arts of the Afro and Asian diasporas in the long 20th century, whose recent performances include, among many, Transgressive Body, Germany, 2019, Secret Journey, Rove, New York, 2019, Time Passes, a Sharon Hayes, Brooke O'Hara event, which I'm so sorry I missed, Philadelphia, 2019, and among many others, Open Fur Florence 2016, and whose collaborators have included Casey Brown, Barry Branham, Asif Aronson, and others. And by Joe Park, longtime faculty colleague of mine, I'm happy to say, here at Penn, who directs Penn's Asian American Studies program, whose work often focuses on American Orientalism and Asian American literature, whose books are Apparitions of Asia, Modernist Form, and Asian American Poetics, and Cold War Friendships, Korea, Vietnam, and Asian American Literature, and who, with Paul Stasi, has co-edited Ezra Pound in the Present Essays on Pound's Contemporaneity. And by Simone White, whose books include Dolly, House Envy of All the World, Unrest, of Being Dispersed, published by Future Poem, and Dear Angel of Death, which was published by Ugly Duckling Press in spring 2018. Winner of a Whiting Award for Poetry, member of the faculty here at Penn, the University of Pennsylvania, and a co-conversant here on Poem Talk for several really fun episodes, including a recent one on Barbara Guest, and is herself the subject of episode 103, in which Eileen Miles, Rachel Zoff, Erica Kaufman, and I talk about two poems from of being dispersed. Simone, it's good to see you. Thank you for coming today. Thank you for having me. Walking down the walk. And Joe, always good to see you. Always a pleasure. I saw you yesterday, two days in a row. Awesome. (laughs) I hope that wasn't ironic. (laughs) No no irony. (laughs) And Dixon, welcome to Poem Talk. Thanks, happy to be here. This is your first time doing it. It's my first time. Yeah, and? Excited. Yeah, Yeah, we're excited to have you. Everybody's very excited about you, so thanks for joining us. Well, today we four have gathered here to talk about two poems by Terence Hayes. In Hayes's book, Wind in a Box, two poems, or maybe more accurately, two versions of a poem. They are MJ Fan Letter and RSVP. The latter poem or version or rewrite includes a number of crossed out lines, but these are single line crossouts, and one can see through and read them. So readers can wonder whether to include or discount them as they read. Listening provides a possibly very different experience. Our Poem Talk program note published in Jacket 2 magazine includes visuals of the text of the poems and also, of course, links to the audio. And as for that audio, Terrence Hayes has made recordings of these poems for us, and we're grateful to him for that. And so here now is Terrence Hayes reading MJ Fan Letter and RSVP. MJ Fan Letter. Dear KOP, for the first dozen years of my life, I never looked at myself. I believed mirrors bore no true social significance, partly because they hung on walls. Convinced then, in the last then quarter of the century, that I was a colorless American boy without detail. Perhaps I should confess my very first brush with love involved a white girl and empty dryer box. I smelled, if I recall, the scent of damp cardboard, which was a scent not altogether unlike my father's olive green army issued boot socks. And so it was that as I and my little cobweb nymph, as I have thought of her ever since, attempted to make a singular glistening smile I thought again and again that my father was walking barefoot nearby with a boot in each fist. 
I felt the ominous pre-tingling a soldier feels when he waits in a trench at the start of a great war, though that was not a year of war, if you recall, but a year of myriad insignificant misdemeanors and dumb disputes. I thought too that the girl had dropped down into my arms from a nest of July late afternoon darkness blooming in the upper corner of the box because her hair danced and dangled across my brown wobbling head like something made in the belly of a spider. And I half wondered then when I would learn what magic it was that gave some creatures the power to spin a thread almost thinner than light. I decided I'd ask my father later when I sat on his chest full of sprawling powder white women and removed his boots and then his socks. But of course I didn't, having been struck dumb by something, the color or length of his toes, the tiny grid pattern the socks left on his ankles. It doesn't matter what, since any boy who spends an afternoon with a girl in a box is prone to forget his questions. I too had a bizarre uber hunger for companionship and have gone on having it as I presume you have ever since. When I pressed my palm against the girl's back, I felt first the impression of her skin inside the white blouse and then the jagged bones of her spine. And I thought of the tiny, tiny spines and all the animals inside and around the box when we found it there at the edge of the park. The stray dogs had spines shaped like my father's belt. The squirrels and field mice had spines shaped like the smallest limbs of the saplings. I thought briefly of grasshopper and ant bodies before considering the spinelessness of the earthworms uncoiling in the mud beneath the box. Mostly I learned what I know of myself by holding my tongue still and I'm wondering how it was with you. Anyone can go back to the summers that were clear as water and I'm assuming you too sat at open windows and listened to the world. Perhaps I shouldn't say yet what it was you and I were waiting for, cousin, but I'll say it never arrived. RSVP. Dear Michael, I have never had to look into mirrors, or rather everything I look into, magazines, televisions, sheetrock, shut doors, is a kind of mirror. Everywhere I look, I see my face. Thank you for sending the autographed photograph, and thank you too for the sequined glove. Your hand must be so small and naked now without it. The interior reminds me vaguely of fresh wood, or maybe the inside of a cardboard dryer box circa 1975, the year I kissed a black boy named Clarence or Terrence or Tyrone. He was a skinny moth boy as shy as you. Sometimes I wonder what would have happened if I'd let that black boy stay inside my mouth? Dear KLP, this is not a letter from one of the white girls you met backstage in Columbus or Lincoln, but from me, your friend, pretending to be a white girl in the hope that this time you might reply. Oh, to be in the head of a pretty white girl. It's nearly impossible even for a black boy raised late in the era of integrated cafeterias, MTV, and soap operas. By now, your experiment must be nearing its sad, inevitable conclusion. Are you asking yourself, am I the beginning of beauty or am I the end? I'm fairly sure that's not something white girls ask themselves, though it's something everyone wonders about them. Africans, Asians, Martians, apes, they love them, some white girls, and you have to wonder, is it all the PR, from Helen of Troy to Mary Christ to your Elizabeth Taylor? P.S. Thank you for the egg-sized diamonds. P.S. Thank you for the cashmere panties. What's the deal with you and Elizabeth? What's the deal with you and Diana, the butch diva for that matter? Once, you could have had the love of anyone. I can still remember your hyperglow socks and fly tuxedo. 
Sometimes my thoughts drift to Billie Jean, that condemned anonymous woman. Whatever happened to her and that baby? Dear Michael, finally the cameras look in another direction. Our child grows in a big-nosed quiet. He sang to himself in the womb like you. I tell him he has a bevy of uncles who once loved synchronized dancing, who now live somewhere nose-to-nose in a crowded mansion. Baby, I don't believe in music anymore. What's a brother got to do to get an answer, brother? If by chance this is the first of my letters you are reading, I've written dozens over the years, let me say again that I understand a man's hunger for company. When I moved north and phoned home to tell my mama I'd fallen in love, she asked if the girl was white, and I snapped, no, ma, she looks like you. That's got to be one of the most outrageous, maybe most reasonable questions my mother has ever asked me. Take love where you find it. Water is the color of what it holds and all that. What does your mother think of your hair and lipstick? Of all the girls' noses pressed at your limo window in 1982, which did she most adore? This is narratively complicated. <laughs> Can we start, anyone, start to just sort of... We don't usually do pump talk this way because it's all about the poeticness of everything, but there's a narrative here. There's some false start narratives. There's some... It's hard to know who's being addressed sometimes. Joe, start us off. What's happening narratively? Okay. I'll start with the crossed-out material that mm-hmm. um, Terrence read in the in that particular voice. And I'll just state the obvious that the first section seems is the, the girl in the dryer box talking. From the other poem. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, the, then we move to just, you know, Elizabeth Taylor and the like who has egg-sized diamonds. But what I really love is the second, the embedded letter, Dear Michael, from Billie Jean. I love the idea of Billie Jean's letter to Michael. Um, But then I was thinking about that narration and about how the white girl can tell a story. And in that first poem, the presentation of her with those spider-like associations and the thread that the white girl is able to draw. So I see the white girl as able to tell a story, whereas the poet and the black boy is struck dumb. Mm. Great start. All right, Dixon, pick it up from there if you can. Okay. Um, I think one of the things I also notice if we're thinking about differences between, say, the poet and the kind of white girls is uh, in the MJ fan letter, uh, the poem says, I never looked at myself. I believed mirrors bore no true social significance. So there's a sense that vision is almost something you can kind of neglect because it's something that doesn't really have a kind of significance where the beginning of the RSVP For the white girl, her own image is unavoidable. She's not really looking at mirrors because every kind of surface is itself some kind of reflection back to her. And so there's an interesting relationship between agency and vision, who gets to see oneself, um, who can't help but see oneself everywhere. Simone, why does, in the second poem, why does the speaker think he has to pretend to be somebody else in order to get Michael's attention? Can I just indicate that we are talking about KOP, Michael Jackson? Yes. R.I.P. Please so, do. So, um, well, I mean, I think the conceit of the poem is uh, implicit in the conceit of the poem in which the speaker of the poem, who is Terrence, I think, right? Terrence yeah. or Tyrone or Clarence. Whoever that was right? in that box um, by the Whoever park. that was in that box. Um which is funny when someone else is saying it, but it right. turns out to be the almost forgettable person is the one who wrote the lines of the person who for, almost forgot him. Right. He's writing everybody's lines. I mean, this is the wonderful thing about that conceit, that he becomes everybody in the poem and nobody all at once. But the I think that the underlying conceit of the poem is the, the epistolary fan letter conceit um, – has another secret conceit, which is the known not knowledge of all black people that white people are more 
um, desirable than they are, whether romantically, sexually, or um, you know, epistemologically, <laughs> so that in order to get the attention of the person who you most desire the attention of, you would, of course, have to elevate yourself to the level of this um, enormous pop star by pretending to be white, and not only white, but also a white woman. So, I, too, had a bizarre uber hunger for companionship. Mm-hmm. And in the other poem, I understand a man's hunger for company. So the language of the two poems is very similar, but in the first poem, the sexual encounter is a much bigger part of the story than in the second. Okay, Joe, take us to the next level here. What's happening? You know, the... I. I, too, marked those lines about the uber hunger. So it's interesting that these poems are, they are and they aren't about a long, a sexual longing for white women. Um, and it, it's about questioning that. But it's, I'm, I'm interested because it's weird to call bizarre uber hunger. That's just called sexual desire at age 12 or whatever, right? Um, and, you know, and then when he becomes a man, you know, that adult hunger. But it's interesting that the that that sexual drive is kind of detached from it. And I, I, I see this as less a longing or a critique of longing for white women, certainly, but less a longing for white women, but a longing to enter the white woman's head and not her body, you know? And so this, this longing to masquerade as a white woman in order to access the power that Simone is talking about that, you know, that's like, for me, the adventure of like reading these two poems together. And, you know, I was thinking, why is the second one called RSVP? And then I remembered RSVP is short for please respond. Please respond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So like, it's I'm like... I'm trying again, yes. Michael. Please yeah. respond to me. Yeah. yeah. It does seem like that because the second one seems to be about the power of the voice because at the end of the first poem, when uh, the speaker's touching the girl's back, uh, all of the kind of physical descriptions are to kind of tiny and frail things. So we've got grasshoppers, ant bodies, the spinelessness of the earthworms uncoiling in the mud beneath the box. Yeah, I think there's something really interesting going on between how do you give a sense of the power of a particular voice that issues from a subject position, which is incredibly desired, because that also seems to be about the opening of the second poem, where the crossed-out white woman is saying, I just see myself everywhere, like my desirability, my reflection, my being positioned in the material world is abundant. I mean, just also to think about the desirability of white women in the context of Michael Jackson's own mm. materiality. You know, obviously, this is a person who continuously, you know, bore down upon his own visage, mm-hmm. you know, in order to sort of excavate mm-hmm. um, a person who he seemed to believe was there, you know, should have been his own face. And, I mean, in a way, it seems to me that the the poem calls um, that expectation that there's another face that's better and inside his body um, a desire for a white woman's face, right, which no one, Michael Jackson himself never declared, but appeared to, I think, the entire world to be apparent in some way. So we call out Elizabeth Taylor and we call out Diana as the sort of avatars of that desire. There's a family thing happening, too, in the first poem, right? So the Terrence speaker has a father who was in the war. The incident takes place in 1975, so I'm just going to guess that the father was a Mm Vietnam-era veteran. And the son gets as close to the um, trench fear, which is very sexualized here, uh, as he can in the ominous pre-tingling inside the box that's likened to waiting in a trench at the start of war. And then mom appears later to say, uh, are you dating a white girl? And it, the Terrence figure is very quick to assure her that he's not. So this is this is juxtaposed to the imagined per Simone's comment just now, the imagined situation of Michael Jackson, though the family isn't explicitly mentioned, this idea of emerging into a self you thought you were from the start. But the Terrence figure is very beholden, especially to the father. The I agree with you, Dixon, that the, 
there's a, a lightness to the fragility of the bodies of the park, but there's also a less fragile trope, which is the stray dogs, which are not very gentle seeming, had spines shaped like my father's belt. So mm-hmm. even as he wraps himself around a girl in the box and gets a sense of her back, he's thinking about his back as the belt of the father who is a soldier who's got hands in his boots. I mean, there's something, there's a struggle with a certain masculinity there that's presumably very different from Michael Jackson. Well, I just said a bunch of things. Joe, can you respond to any of that? Yeah, you know, I'm so struck by the presentation of the father here. I mean, there's clearly such an edge of violence because of the military-grade stuff, but he's so inhuman. I mean, I'm very struck by... When I sat on his chest, full of sprawling powder, and then I thought, "Oh, is that like a, is it like a footlocker? Like what, or is it a part of his body?" And then the spine of the belt. So the father is obviously defined by all these objects, which are pretty scary, like a belt, like a boot. These are very violent things, especially for a son, the son and father relationship. But you know, all the delicate bodies are like this white girl's delicate body, and she's a creature, and she's likened to like the, the spider. So I don't know. I mean, the the kind of inhuman material of the father. But also another connection, which is very weird to me, is you know the the hands in the boot. I don't understand. You know, it's really terrifying. But it does resonate with the opening of RSVP where the fake, the masquerade of the girl is saying, oh, what's it like to have your hand out of that sequin glove, MJ? You know, so I I agree with you, totally, totally different standard of masculinity between the father and the king of pop, right? And the boot and the glove I find really striking. Yeah, the wearing of the boots on the hands and then the glove are exactly parallel to one another. But also, I mean, just this parent figure is fascinating the because this is i actually have recollection, recollections of this also of removing my father's shoes and socks um and so in a way although it appears to be uh, an image that's sort of steeped in gravity and and hardness and violence it's actually a, an act of tenderness to and be able to see mm-hmm. someone's domestic feet tenderness, yeah. yeah and to be able to um Kind of, I mean, it's it's both prostration and also kind of devotional care. Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's the washing of the feet that indicates that one is on the level of everyone else. It's a kind of democratic love. Um, but also the, I can't, I don't know what to think about the white women inside the chest. You know, the, um, <laughs> what, mm-hmm. what is the, what are the, the full of sp- Brawling powder white women. It's almost like. What does it actually refer to? I thought it was like a chest of like Playboy magazines. I don't know. I think it's (laughs) chest hair. Yeah, I don't know. I went for the object, but really? you're going for the human. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't figure it out either. When I This is like the third time reading it, and I was thinking, like, there's the possibility that it's chest, the physical thing, and I actually hadn't thought about actual chest hairs yet. Mm. This is powder white women, not white women. I, I, I keep seeing the recollections of the war mixed in with this adolescent boy trying to figure out his relationship with his father and with girls. It's possible that these are the memory through tales of Vietnamese women. Mm. Right. Powder white women. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an interesting thing where containers are doing really funny work with desire in here because there's the chest as a potential... You know, it could be a corporeal chest or it could be an actual chest you're sitting on with war mementos. It could Mm -hmm. be metaphorical. These are stories being told. This is taking place in an empty dryer box with cobwebs. Mm -hmm. There's the illusion that there's a bunch of unsent letters to Michael Jackson or unreceived letters. There's Billie Jean talking about Mm -hmm. the child inside of her. There's Billie Jean's telling her child that her child has uncles in a mansion and they're stuffed nose to nose. So... This kind of containerness, mm-hmm. what's inside, seems to be really interesting. Why do we think Billie Jean is talking? I don't think Billie Jean speaks. Um, my thoughts do drift to Billie Jean, mm-hmm. that condemned anonymous white woman. Whatever happened to her and that baby? Uh, oh, I see. Yeah, That's our her. child grows. Yeah, there our she child. up in here. Yeah. And then she Dear says Michael. we have uncles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she becomes the speaker. Yeah. Which, Suddenly. And she's she's 
different. Like there's something interesting about Billie Jean. I think Billie Jean is infecting the poem in a different way. And even what the mother says at the end, you know, with the mother's question, I, of course, watched um, Billie Jean on my computer before coming here. <laughs> I watched, uh, watched, I watched Smooth Criminal a bunch of times. <laughs> but, you know, I, uh, mother always told me, be careful who you mm-hmm. love. You know, mm-hmm. I think that... That Billie Jean is kind of, and the closing, you know, but like, what what does your mother think of you? You know, as you are kind of uncovering this this white woman, you know, be careful who you love, be careful who you become. I don't believe in music anymore. Maybe <laughs> I don't believe in music anymore. And in, in a narrative well, embedded the... in, in trying to get Michael Jackson's attention, mm-hmm. that's a pretty complicated statement. I, you know, it's funny. I I wonder why I I can never hear. It. Billie Jean, she's, I think she's the black woman in the poem, aside from the mother. Mm. That's but interesting. Also, the yeah. line that I love most in these two poems is our child grows in a big-nosed quiet, mm. which just blows me away every time. And somehow I can't, why can't I wrap my head around it as like this being the child of these two black people. Well, what do you think the big nose is? Because I just remember being a child and one of the big, like, besides the kind of skin bleaching, it was the nose jobs. Exactly. Yeah. Were such a big yeah. deal. So that kind of our child with the big nose and then the um, yeah. the uncles are all in a house, big nose too. Yeah. I I mean, I'm just, again, I have a very prosaic reading here, which, you know, the, the child has a big nose because... He hasn't had plastic surgery. In yeah, that right. right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, back to the father, though, and maybe my favorite line: these poems is the tiny grid pattern the socks left on his ankles. So at the same time that I um, see the father as a potentially brutal figure, I'm very touched by that description of the feet, the naked feet, and how. Terence is struck dumb and can't ask his question because of something, and it's the the vision of those feet. I'm sorry, and uh, you know the web pattern. I can just picture it, which is why it's so po- powerful. But the web links me back to the spider web that you know that is associated with the girl. You know, so the father I think has a kind of tenderness, but also that kind of brutality. I'm suggesting. Joe, this leads me to a question I've wanted to ask. In the middle of the MJ fan letter poem, and we've got the scene with the father and this tender observation, we get a parenthesis, which is a question. The color or length of his toes, the tiny grid pattern, the socks left on his ankles, question mark. Then outside the parenthesis, it doesn't matter what, since any boy who spends an afternoon with a girl in a box is prone to forget his questions. Can someone explain that? I mean, it has to do with the father and the tenderness and that uh, uh, undoing some of the rage of the father who's exhausted from war, exhausted from the brutalities of the world. Then the son strokes him, domesticates him, is touching him in a tender way. Then he needs to turn to presumably bad teen sex in a mm-hmm. box in a park and he doesn't know what the questions are so are you thinking a little bit about how there's a kind of homoeroticism in that kind of i'm just thinking because yeah and also in the desired to... relationship with michael possibly yeah and that seems to in that reading get kind of sublimated into the girl in the box instead exactly well i mean i can't ever you know we if this if the encounter between you know the child who's the original sort of the scene the person who's participating in the original scene takes place when this child is say 3 or 4 years old which i think is actually what happens right then you're thinking about a michael jackson who is um the biggest pop star the world has ever known in the middle 80s when this person would have been 12 or 13, right? The first dozen years of my life where this person becomes a superstar. And then the Michael Jackson, who would have been the Michael Jackson when the poem was composed, you know, in the 90s or early 2000s. But that Michael Jackson is a Michael Jackson who we can't separate from, um, you know, child sexual abuse. And so... 
all of the sexualities of the poem at that point become a, a kind of morass of, of like remembering and forgetting, right? And that child sexuality becomes a scene of incredible, fraught um, confusion. So that, of course you would forget your, I mean, of course you would forget your questions. It would be necessary to forget your questions <laughs> if yeah. you were in a scene where your desire for this person who was a deeply troubled yes. um, and tr- now we know even more troubling figure than we ever could accept. This is why that too, I too, is so moving, powerful for me, mm-hmm. right? It's not my questions, his questions. I'm going to, so I got to do the girl in the box. That boy is prone to forget his questions, either the boy's own questions or the father's questions. And the patrilineage here is the bizarre uber hunger. Mm-hmm. I too had a bizarre uber hunger for companionship. Well, that's kind of Michael's thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's bizarre uber hunger. Yeah, I'm almost mm-hmm. going to cry because, mm-hmm. I mean, this is like the, the tragedy of this is huge mm-hmm. and moves mm-hmm. in so many directions. And the fact that Terrence Hayes could be trying to get to the bottom of it is itself, like, it's a not an easy thing to do. When I heard the his, the female-ish mm-hmm. voice, I thought, oh, that's such a bad strategy when he recorded it for us. Mm. And then I thought, oh, he's really putting himself out there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an incredible, a beautiful intervention in this problem of mirroring and, as you said, containers, which is both racialized and sexualized in the in the sort of like retrospective problem of what Michael Jackson represented to so many people and what he actually was in the lives of some. And, um, I, you know, I don't know how to describe... The reason this poem is, is amazing to me is that I don't exactly know how to explain the effects that Terrence is able to achieve through this simple strategy of crossing out certain lines. And... Um, one of them is, I think, to raise these specters, which otherwise couldn't be really narrativized, mm-hmm. right? So, but also, it's not just that, because those are in some ways like surface and obvious. The things that really get to me are these moments, as you say, where the poem goes quiet, you know? It doesn't matter what, since any boy who spends an afternoon with a girl in a box is prone to forget his questions. I, too, had a bizarre hunger. The baby grows in a big-nosed quiet. It's just secret after secret after secret compartment, you know, never being able to see the truth, never being able to look really directly at oneself. I mean, I'm thinking very psychoanalytically. Go ahead. This kind of identification and convergence. I mean, we can psychoanalyze to death, but the one that I'm thinking about is when Laplanche and Pantalus talk about the enigmatic signifier. And so that's like all babies when they're really young are parental energy is just too much. Mm -hmm. And so the baby just starts to, basically what they say is babies get enigmatic signifiers. Enigmatic signifiers are passed down through parents to children, parents to children, and it's an enigma because it has no answer. And so what it does is it elicits a kind of searching energy, but there's not really going to be a solution to it. It's the closest psychoanalysts have, in my opinion, to explaining inherited trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there is inherited trauma here. The the. What is the question he's asking? I think your psychoanalytic turn is interesting, and I, I so mm-hmm. the the question, um, the line, um, I half wondered then when I would learn what magic it was that gave some creatures the power to spin a thread almost thinner than light. So, to me, this goes back to the power of white girlhood, white mm-hmm. womanhood. Why does she have this power? I don't. I can't. I'm struck dumb. But that's why I love the image with the father's foot and the grid on the ankles because you see the spider web on that that he's able to convey something through his naked foot. But this oh, this is when I'm going to do an embarrassing too close reading <laughs> of the next poem. So you know those lines that are crossed out? Mm. I read that spider as <laughs> the thread almost thinner than light, mm. right? So on the one hand, it seems like we're erasure, you know, to see the mm. line over the the women's or the the speech, but in fact, that's where the narrative is. You know, mm-hmm. like that that is what has 
the narrative drive that he himself does not have. And he's, and is and the, these poems are silent. There's like no music, right? I mm. mean, there's si- and he, he can't ask a question. You know, it's about being quiet. Mm. Convinced then in the last then quarter of the century that I was a colorless American boy without detail, Perhaps I should confess my very first brush with love involved a white girl and empty dryer box. I smelled, if I recall, the scent of damp cardboard, which was a scent not altogether unlike my father's olive green army issued boot socks. And so it was that as I and my little cobweb nymph, as I have thought of her ever since, attempted to make a singular glistening smile I thought again and again that my father was walking barefoot nearby with a boot in each fist. My little cobweb nymph in the first poem mm. refers to the girl in the box, but as we come as we go further into it and we see the webby of the toes and the it's really mm. the, the father is the little cobweb nymph in a way. It's, mm. There's a total confusion. It's interesting. I mean, he's a figure of of longing. I mean, he's an mm. object of longing for the for the son. I think definitely. Yeah, I think there's something really fucked up about. I don't mean about this speaker. I think about people, and I'm going to say young men in particular, t- t- seeking sex in a box at the edge of a park, as a way of getting as close as you can mm-hmm. to the tingling feeling of warfare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the la- this is the last quarter, quarter of the thin last quarter of the century. That's 1975 to 2000. Mm-hmm. What was the date, Dixon? 2006 is okay, when the book comes so this out. Is a, this is a kind of a millennial turn poem, and that is to say end of, end of the millennium. And, you know, war is an option in so many times, especially in times of draft, which is most of the 20th century in the United States including African-American soldiers, draft. There isn't a draft for this young person who's Mm -hmm. speaking. Hmm. So there's sex in a box. Simone, what are you thinking? I was thinking about the title, Wind in a Box. Mm -hmm. I I think there is a poem in the book called Wind in a Box. Yeah, a bunch of them, actually. But this poem is also Wind in a Box. And the wind is? (laughs) The wind is, um, gosh, it's... It's, I mean, wind. It's but... the lyric, isn't it? The wind. Oh, gosh. A Western wind, wind will happen. Yeah, I don't sure. want to say that. <laughs> you don't want to say that because no. it's too obvious? No. I guess I don't want to say it because because there is there's a, an important materiality, which is mm-hmm. this, which is this, um, you know, this like spectral subjectivity, which is so powerful, like a mm-hmm. spider web, right? Which is the power of white women, which is not mm. wind. Uh, not lyric energy, you know, mm-hmm. it's something else altogether. It's not oppositional necessarily to the speaker speaking here because it gives it gives him something to talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, but, the wind sort of animates the cobweb. Right. That's how he mm-hmm. catches the glimpse mm-hmm. of it being so glistening is because presumably there's some kind Oops. of wind or motion. Yes. I have one more question to ask, then we're going to go around and get final, final thoughts here. My last question is... Um, when MJ is addressed as cousin at the mm. end of the first poem and as brother somewhere mm. in the second, is that ironic? Well, I was thinking about your comment just a little bit ago about war and the, the homosocial longing of war. You know, it's this is a longing for a brother for a brother. It's a longing between brother brothers. Brother in arms, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that from the uber, bizarre uber hunger of the first, which is the cousin, and then the the adult, the grown hunger of the second, which is the brother. I mean, we can track those. How do you read, perhaps I shouldn't say yet, what it was you and I were waiting for, cousin? But I'll say it never arrived. All I can think of is the letters that never get responded to. But Dixon, cousin seems ironic to me. Or a little pissed off, yeah, but I could be wrong. I would say so. I mean, I, I, it's so restrained the use of these kind of like black, common black sort of like what do you call these terms in terms of endearment or something. They're almost like address, uh, cousin, baby, 
brother. But this poem has always struck me as a poem which is barely containing, you know, the rage at being unable to connect with this person who is so deeply admired and mm. and has structured, you know, their entire understanding about, you know, like transcendent um, artistic achievement in a way, um, but also through music. And so I those I love it when Black people address each other as brother, cousin, and baby. It, they're among my favorite terms of endearment and address. And I do think that they are used ironically here, never in a friendly way hmm. and not in a loving way. So, hmm. Okay, we could go on forever. This has been so... I, I, not to... I had high expectations. I also had low expectations. I don't like. I didn't know what we were going to do with Michael Jackson. It's such a there's such a large shadow being. I think we did great, but I don't usually say that in the middle of a poem talk. But but we could go on for a long time happily. But let's each offer one more thing. Let's go around one thought that you came here ready to say, but you just didn't have a chance to yet for one reason or another. Who's got a final thought they want to throw in? I can do a quick one. Joe? So I noticed that Terrence Hayes and I were bo- both born in 1971. And I'm going to say in the 1983, which is when Billie Jean was a hit single, which I remember well. Uh, so I don't know. I feel weirdly, I feel what this poem feels. I feel like what I feel the intensity of Michael Jackson in 1983 this poem wow joe this is why i think the poem is so important that i'm i also i'm born 1972 so night there was nothing more important than those glittering gloves let me tell i mean really truly and so you know am i be the beginning of beauty or am i the mm-hmm. end i mean come on like that's amazing but all it's amazing because I, i'm just to be willing to take on Michael Jackson in 2006 as an icon and a figure of trouble and of nascent and developing sexuality, I mean really nascent and developing sexuality, and how no one could possibly have not been touched by this. I think, you know, I I think this poem is one for the ages. You know, I'm so struck by the ending of the first poem, waiting for something that never arrives. And this kind of not being able to arrive at something, for me, feels so connected to the poems trying to occupy different types of impossible positions. Terrence Hayes being a hyper-desired white girl. And then the really unoccupied (laughs) position, which is Michael Jackson's subjectivity. Like, we never get Michael Jackson in this sequence of poems. Um, And so... Something about waiting for something that never arrives and then a position that you also can't ever get to, which is also the position of the recipient of these letters. Fantastic. Oh, the three of you just really killed it with final words. I feel like going around again, but I won't. Uh, my final thought is pretty pedestrian. It's A lot of people come up to me and say, oh, you're the poetry guy. Like, what's, <laughs> what is it about poetry, you know? And one answer is, Oh, you know, like if you read a newspaper once, if you get it through, if you get through the newspaper once, fine. You really don't have to reread it. And eh, there's some novels where I've read twice or three times, but I got it. I don't have to do it again. And so my first answer is always poetry is the thing that you have to keep reading and reading and reading. But I think a second level answer is dawning in me as a result of Simone's choice. I'll reveal this was your. You really wanted to talk about this. I'm glad that you did. Um, it dawns on me that only poetry could do this work that he's done about Michael Jackson, thinking through it. Um, Maybe that's too exclusive and proud a statement about the genre or about that world, but we've all tried to understand through the various media that have applied itself to this incredibly difficult question about Michael Jackson. And this this is the first time I felt like I was beginning to grasp the complexity of it, I have to say. Um, Poetry is social and psychosocial analysis and understanding with all of the stuff, all the beautiful, almost quiet words 
the psychoanalysis, the theory, the sexuality, racial identity. I mean, it does all, it does all this work. And that's all I want to say. Poetry, like, can do it. Go poetry. <laughs> um, so we like to end Pone Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for several of us, or all of us if we're quick, to spread wide our narrow hands. I'm doing the Dickinsonian thing, let the record show, to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or in the dance world or in the film world or whatever, whatever world you want. Who's ready to do that? I'm looking at Simone. Are you ready? You're not. I can say something which I am excited to do but have not yet done, which is to see Queen and Slim. I'm really excited to see this film, which it seems to be the subject of every conversation on the planet. And why specifically? What have you heard people talk about that makes you want to go? That I have heard that it is the people say that it is the Black Thelma and Louise. Hmm. But I've heard that a number of times. Right? Yeah, you sure that's not just a tagline? It's a tagline. Okay. So I'm curious. I don't know what that means, and mm -hmm. so I'm very interested to see. Um, what it would mean for two black people to go over a cliff together and have people enjoy it. <laughs> mm. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll have to invite you back to another poem talk yeah. to find out how you liked it. What was Queen and Slim all about? Okay, good. Dixon? Yeah, so I have something that's kind of all of those things. Uh, my friend Jamil Kosoko is coming out with a new performance piece, which is on video. And I think he also has a book of poetry coming out in the next year, too. So the performance piece, I think, is called um, Autobiomythography. And I think it's having a soft premiere in January in New York. And then that's January 2020. January 2020 in New York. Mm -hmm. And then we'll be touring, I think, for the rest now, of the, the year. Now, the video is it Vimeo? Is it YouTube? Is it on the I don't know. site? You don't know. We just have no. to, we just yeah, have we to just use have to... a search engine and yeah. find it. Okay, good. And spell the last name uh, Kosoko, K O S O K O. And then Jamil is J A A M I L. Fantastic. Thank you. Joe Park, gather some paradise. Okay, this is bizarre one, but it follows from your yay poetry comment, which yay I love. Poetry, right. So I bizarrely um, agreed to do a commentary on a rock drill canto of Ezra Pound's. Big mistake. Which one? 92, which is like the least interesting. It's okay. But... Um, in order, but not to, a good period for Pound. 19, no, 1950s, 1950s, like 1959. That's Saint, Saint Elizabeth, like not the stuff he time, wrote not was time. not good. Why did you say yes? You got to stop saying yes. Because it was ridiculous. Yeah, I sh the <laughs> what answer. A funny... Yeah, the answer is like, like the obviously I should have said no. But the one really happy thing about trying to write this thing is I've been rereading Hugh Kenner, <laughs> and I love Hugh Kenner. <laughs> the way he writes. You can write about whatever you want through poetry. He just says whatever. He, I mean, it's spectacular. So I'm just say something about Hugh, Hugh Kenner that nobody knows. I can do that. I can start, and then you can. <laughs> no, no, no. That's all you. I'm. I'm just Hugh Kenner. Delighted. As a younger person in the early '60s, I guess he needed some cash or something. But he was the poetry editor of the National Review Ooh. when it was a really conservative magazine. That's bizarre. Buckley was the editor, and. Hugh Kenner was the poetry editor. And I once read all of the poems that he presumably accepted for that mm -hmm. magazine. Yeah. Whoa. Pretty bad. You have and just yet, gotten right into Al's wheelhouse. Thank you. That's the, <laughs> that is the first time. <laughs> Joe Park, that is the first time anyone in Gathering Paradise, pa Hugh, Hugh Kenner and Paradise. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something that's anti-paradisal. I've never done this. Gathering Paradise is supposed to be positive. There's a, too much negativity in the poetry world. People are after each other. They're not nice to each other. We've got to stop that. But I'm going to do something nasty for the first time ever. Well, it's not really nasty. So I am going to do a gathering hell. <laughs> I mean, a gathering mm. not paradise. So I have here, I'm holding here the Norton Anthology of Modern Poetry. This is the Elman Eau Claire volume. Now, the copy I have, it looks banking new, but in fact, my real, the copy I used when I was coming of age as a poetry critic or whatever is much thumbed. And 
I just want to say there came a point in around 1992 when I was teaching a survey course in the days when you had the students buy books. Um, and I had them buy this book, and I noticed the more I taught the course, the less I had them read from the book because there were no poems that I wanted to teach in this great anthology. Got to the point pretty soon. I felt like we had to have an anthology. This was a long time ago when we anthologies were a thing, right? And then there came a point where not a single poem in this anthology was what I wanted to teach. And that was the moment, well, when I realized that the Norton was out, this Norton was outmoded. And it was also the moment when I needed to do this thing that was called the World Wide Web. And there was this programming language called HTML, which I taught myself. And I began to rewrite poems that I did want to teach. That is to type them, sorry, not to rewrite them. And put them up on the web and see that the whole world could see them. And this is before there was a graphical web browser. This was pretty early. So then the Netscape came and people could read the poems. And, you know, they're all, at, they're all like violating copyright, those early poems that I typed, you know, John Ashbery poem or, you know, a Baraka poem or whatever. None of it was available in an anthology. And I just put them out on the web. And then they're still there. You can find them, although it's not kosher because they're, they're, they, I should have gotten permission. But that's the beginning. So the Norton Anthology to me is like that thing that was no good anymore that allowed me to construct my own syllabus, which was kind of an unheard of thing. Well, that's all the ominous pre-battle tingling we have time for. Home <laughs> talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Dixon Lee, Joe Park, and Simone White. Dixon, Dixon snaps. This was your rookie go-round. At... You wanted me to snap. Well, you're snapping snap. into the mic. I'm sure the sound people are not happy about that. But anyway, love it. Just Dixon pop. Lee, thank you. Thank you. Your, pa- I your parodies I should have gathered. Thank you for, for doing this. Your oh, first time on Poem Talk. And also to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardner and Leah Baxter, and to Poem Talk's editor, the self-same amazing Zach Cardner and a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, the Poem Talk crew will have gone across the country to Seattle, Washington, where Tyrone Williams, Kate Colby, Alden Nielsen, and Monica Della Torre will talk with me about Wallace Stevens, the poem that took the place of a mountain. Yeah, that'll be fun. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk.